0: and welcome back to another episode of Talking to Change, a motivational interviewing podcast uh, with myself, Sebastian Kaplan, and my good friend from Derry, Northern Ireland, Glenn Hines. Hello, Glenn. Hey, Sam. Well, today uh, we're, we have a, an exciting episode, we hope, for you all. Uh, today's our seventh episode. And uh, before we introduce our guest, uh, Glenn, maybe you could tell the audience, the listeners, how they can find us and how they can contact us on all the social media points of access. Sure.
1: So, for people who are following us on Twitter, we're at Change Talking. For Facebook, we're at Talking to Change. And for email questions, it's podcast at glennheinz.com. Excellent.
0: Well, like I said, we'll, we'll get right to it. We're very excited for today's episode. We have Steve Rolnick with us. Uh, and in today's episode, we'll probably get to a number of different topics uh, pertaining to MI, not necessarily focusing on one of the specifics, but uh, I'll go ahead and introduce Steve and, uh, and away we go. So, Stephen Rolnick is an honorary distinguished professor in the Cochrane Institute of Primary Care and Public Health School of Medicine at Cardiff University. He was a practicing psychologist in the UK National Health Service for 16 years and then became a teacher and researcher in primary care on the subject of communication. He is one of the co-founders of Motivational Interviewing and has co-authored multiple books on MI, including Motivational Interviewing, Helping People Change, Health Behavior Change, A Guide for Practitioners, and Motivational Interviewing in Healthcare, among others. Steve has a special interest in challenging consultations in hospital and primary care settings, and he has published widely in scientific journals and has taught practitioners in many countries and continents. Welcome, warmly welcome you to the podcast, Steve. Hello. Hey guys, nice nice to speak to you, really good. So we thought, uh, it might be a, a great opportunity to hear from you just where MI came from, what some of the origins were, your you know, early uh, contacts with Bill Miller, and just sort of where it all came from. So take it away, if you would. Oh, quite, quite a question there, Seb. But, um, yeah, there were these
2: two psychologists um, who gathered and met for the first time quite soon after MI uh, was published in a little paper that Bill wrote, and I guess the journey since then has has felt to me very much like one from the world of specialist psychology to everyday practice. And um maybe that's something I'll pick up on, or you guys can pick up on as we go along. but um, i I guess I've lost a lot of hair and be and felt pretty nervous over the years about uh, the limitations and dangers of of everything produced being produced by these specialist psychologists that like that's where. The kind of real wisdom is when actually most of MI um, sits in everyday practice as a natural way of being with people. And we have just added a few like little things onto it that make it special. So I hope that while we're talking, I can identify what the special things are. But actually, probably more important, clarify what it is in everyday exchanges that is familiar and recognizable in MI and can be used by um, uh, folk in whatever setting they work in including at home, including wherever. But, you know, um, I guess I, I guess I might start by being a bit personal. Um, for me, uh, I uh, left South Africa, I guess in a state of exile, and came to the United Kingdom and struggled my way through uh, working in addiction. And um, one day my boss at the time uh, put a paper in front of me and, say, and said, look, you know I edit this little journal, a very insignificant journal. will will not you have a look at this paper and see whether you think I should publish it? So I was a slightly egotistical, puffy-chested, you know, uh, 28-year-old. This was my first paper to review, and I felt quite, oh, this is great. Yeah, yeah. And it was this paper called Motivational Interviewing. And um, I uh, started practicing it. And then, even started quite outrageously reckoning I knew how to teach people how to do it, which is a different journey. Actually, looking back, it's not so straightforward. But anyway, there I was teaching it. And um, a few years later, I, I ended up in Sydney, Australia, where I had a uh, fellowship. And my plan was to do a PhD on motivational interviewing in a healthcare setting with folk who were on hospital wards. So right from the beginning for me, I was noticing that MI could be relevant somewhere outside of the world of of, of the psychologist and addiction, which is where it sat to begin with. And um, I noticed these commonalities across these different settings. The guy in the office next to me had this beard and sat sideways in his at his computer and just typed like a lunatic. And uh, it was towards the end of my first day there. I thought, I wonder who this guy is. These guys are serious academics. I couldn't type like that if I tried. So I walked in, and it was this bloke, Bill Miller. And I said, wow, what a coincidence, because I've come to Australia to try and adapt this motivational interview. And the guy was shocked. He said, well, you know what? I never knew anybody in the U.K. knew anything about it. And I said, yeah, I've been teaching this for years and stuff. So there you go. There's a personal anecdote, Seb, but you know, a, a, a little bit more seriously, I had worked in the addictions field in, in, in Cape Town, South Africa, and experienced um, the ravages, the absolute ravages of um, a professional uh, specialist addiction treatment uh, setting in which the staff and everybody else knew exactly what was good for the clients. And I use the word ravages quite literally because uh, there was a kind of a very much a top down idea that, that we know what's best for you and you messing up your life. And if only you listen to us, um, we need to strip you of your denial and give you insight. And you'll realize how uh, destructive you're being and you'll change. And I didn't I wasn't clear about anything I'm saying now. This is this is definitely the benefit of hindsight, if you know what I mean. But really that it was the ravages because um, they were really unkind about the patients I noticed in the coffee room. And then one guy, I, I was put in charge of a group for young alcoholics. They thought this was a safe thing to to put a young 20, 20-something-year-old, 20 you know, psychology graduate in. And a bloke who never said a word in the group walked out and 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 committed murder and 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 suicide. Um, you know, in front of his two little twin daughters. And I um, then came to, to Britain and encountered the same culture in, a, in an addiction treatment setting in, in the United Kingdom and then saw Miller's paper and I thought, wow. So there's a different way of helping people to change and that's, uh, that's where it started for me. And that simple truth that there are other ways of helping people to change then trying to oblige them and pressurize them to change has remained with me ever since and in a way represents the heart of what uh, motivational interviewing is and something that I know practitioners all over the place in all these different settings recognize as having its limitations and so that's why they see familiar things in motivational interviewing which has obviously been a delight to me right so what are these familiar things I don't know, Seb, unpacking what are these familiar things has been um, an incredible journey. And it's, it's really, uh, uh, it's great to hear that you guys are involving other people in these podcasts and stuff. And it's a lovely thing about the MI field that there isn't this overvaluation of people like myself, even though I'm a, a co-founder, because really what, in a way, what we all are, are, if you like, psycho archaeologists. It's a weird phrase. I've not heard it used before. But you know, we're uncovering truths that are out there. It's just that we're we're kind of scrambling through the, through the through the uh, through the material that exists out there in psychology and other fields, and picking up these like little gems and trying to say, look, hey, this is out there. Um, here's a better way of going about it. God, I don't know if that's a long-winded answer to your question, but anyway. So it's, I'll it's leave a, you to work that one out. Well, so.
1: it, it sounds like, it sounds like, in many ways, Steve, what you were saying is that that you were already noticing yourself that there was something that wasn't resonating for you or wasn't fitting for you in the way people were experiencing addiction treatment. And Bill's original paper, the tune it sang resonated with you, that it, it was a tune that was already in you, and what you've been doing over a over year since is trying to put the notes on the page to... To communicate that, that song to other people in and, and a way that they can understand and trying to make sense of why this music is the way it is. What is yeah. motivational interviewing and why is it this way? And, but ultimately, it was, it, was been, it was always been driven by a desire within you to be as helpful as possible to the people that you were encountering.
2: Exactly. Hmm. That's, well, that's well put, Glenn. That's exactly right.
1: So when when we think of it in that way, what what are the, what are some of the notes that that stand out for you? What are some of the when you've been doing that archaeological digging? What are some of the treasures that you've discovered that you think people who are beginning a journey of motivational interviewing or who already practice motivational interviewing might need would benefit from hearing about or learning more about?
2: Hell have a question, that Glenn. Mm. and. Um, I think from the beginning, one of one of the jewels or, or notes as you're using a, a, a musical metaphor um, has been the incredible power of listening. Mm. How listening can be used to settle people down. Uh, we call it reflection, as you know, in the in the MI field, but how listening can be used to settle people down and indeed um, encourage them and point them in the direction of working out for themselves why and how they might change. So one jewel that's been there from the beginning um, is listening. But then I must I must be honest with you. Some of the most powerful jewels I've only recently kind of <laughs> realised are there. They were there in motivational interviewing, but it's 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 been a process of simplifying and crystallising what these jewels are. And uh, another one has been affirmation, which is something we might talk about in this podcast. And that's really something that's uh, I, I sat down with Miller here in this very same backyard of mine um, two, three weeks ago trying to work out where the hell does this idea of affirming come from, you know, uh, who who, who, who was it that raised this? And he and I were saying, he said, well, it's you, Steve, you were the one who mentioned affirming first. And I said, yeah, but where did it come from? And um, he started looking in the literature and we couldn't find clear, clear definitions and things. And so here we are 20, 30 years later trying to unpack what is the incredible power mm. of a skill like affirming. And so um, its origins and its connections are very familiar to all of us. The, this, this idea that you look at someone's strengths, that's very familiar to quality teaching, sports coaching, parenting, helpfulness. But the actual skill of affirming is something that's not widely used and known about and learned mm. and tr- people haven't been trained in. So that, that's another Glenn Hmm. um but I think probably the most important is the attitude and that is familiar but kind of refining what that attitude is has been um a hell of a journey because I must be honest with you to begin with we were specialist psychologists writing this thing called motivational interviewing in the addictions field but hell Glenn you know um we were making things incredibly complicated because psychologists do that. Mm. You know, when if you look at the psychological therapies, there's theories and sub theories. I know we didn't create a theory around MI and I insisted from the beginning, let's not do theory. Let, let's focus on what works in practice and let explanation arise from that. And I guess that's what we're doing now. Mm. I'm actually talking about what it is that might be helpful for people. What, what is the explanation of helpfulness? And so Although we weren't clever in that respect, I think we were clever in the sense of, in, in a bit of a negative sense, in that we were kind of saying, oh, there's this and there's that, and there's this and there's that. And before we knew it, we'd created, we wrote this book, the first edition of the motivational interviewing text, which hell man, I, I mean, it was quite complicated. And we kind of threw everything into the mixture that we thought might be useful because mm. we were clever psychologists. But, you know, this is me hoping, and I think it, it we might, be starting to realize this, that, you know, not just in this podcast, but in the podcast of some of, some of our colleagues who've contributed to your efforts here, um, it's not all that complicated. <laughs> but, you know, so I think the most important jewel has been the attitude, mm. the attitude shift, and uncovering what the um, attitude really is behind something like MI. But then there are some of the skills and I've referred to two of them. Uh, one is listening, the other is affirming. Um, and now more recently, I've been moving into different settings, Glenn, you know, like like schools indeed with with, with Seb. We've written a book on MI in schools and now I'm immersed in sport. and um, I, I think this this attitude, I observe in quality school teachers and quality sports coaches, for mm-hmm. example. But I think there's something additional that we produce in the MI, and I'm hoping in this podcast we can clarify what that um,
0: additional attitude is. Right, and I'm so glad you're mentioning some of these uh, these key treasures, uh, as you put it, Glenn, uh, and and just. Something that's always resonated with me in hearing you you speak, or in some of our chat, Steve, is uh, just your your dedication and efforts to really make things simple. Uh, so something like listening, uh, or you know, trying to understand, you know, what is it about affirmations or, or focusing on people's strengths that these aren't some sort of super intellectual fancy. Uh, Models or theories that these are just really sort of everyday accessible experiences that that just two people having a conversation uh, would experience with each other and 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 really just trying to get at some of the sort of fundamental elements of a of a helping conversation across across specialties across settings across environments. Uh, so I'm I'm just really thankful that you're you're pointing us to that. And um I guess another thing that really struck me as well was, you know, they had Bill Miller in the US, your original experiences in South Africa, then going to the UK, that that there that this is in a lot of ways maybe a, a global shift that's happening in in settings where people talk with each other about change. And and that is a one that had been very much about forcing people or compelling people or manipulating people to change. And and it's it's this global efforts to try to get at what some of these underlying jewels are and, and how to really explore the best ways of being helpful to other people.
2: Yeah, you know, Seb, it's a weird thing because in a way it would be brilliant if motivational interviewing absolutely wasn't necessary. Um, right. But unfortunately... I guess it's not just – the problem is not just kind of persuading and and confronting. It's also telling. Mm. And and there's a funny conundrum there because um, there are – the the process of telling and advising people is a subject we might come back to. But um, it becomes dysfunctional. It becomes dysfunctional. And what I've realized over the years is that the more stressed an individual or a system is, the more likely they are to tell someone else why and how they should change. Mm. Not necessarily confronting, but look, mm. there's a problem, you sort it this way. And the more stressed you feel, the more inclined you are to do that with somebody, whether it's your child or a client. And so that reference to kind of worldwide. Um, that this is something that happens worldwide, I think, is dead accurate, and sadly, um, there's a need for motivational interviewing in my mind, precisely because a lot of the, the, the like the care environments that we're probably going to be focusing on, they're quite stressed. Eh? They're short of money, yeah, and uh, people say they're short of time, and um, they're driven often by targets Mm. and procedures that are established by managers and services and by the system itself. And the more that happens, the more stressed the practitioners feel, the more stressed they feel, the more likely they are to um, use a dysfunctional way of speaking to people about change.
1: So while their intention as a helper is to be supportive, in some ways, perhaps the others could be thinking about this for themselves, is that what you seem to be suggesting is that, that when when we find ourselves trying to take control of the client's situation or their circumstances, that that in itself may be a reflection of our own state of well-being within within ourselves, perhaps within the organisation, that our our own sense of being out of control is manifest in our efforts to take control of the client's circumstances.
2: <laughs> yeah, and, I mean, it's quite lofty what we're saying and what you're saying there, Glenn, but I think it's true. Hmm. And one of the changes that that... that is taking place, certainly inside me and in my writing, and I think in our understanding of MI as well, is that this is not just about the client mm. or, or the patient and their motivation. It actually, um, it's got a lot to do with the state of mind that we are in. Right. And uh, that's not an, just a negative thing, it's also a very positive thing, because if we can settle, settle ourselves and settle into a um, helpful state, mm. it's possible to use motivational interviewing very briefly, Very skillfully, Uh, and maybe I'll I'll, I'll, just to just to hopefully inspire uh, you and the listeners. I sat just before I came here with a very quite a famous elite sportsman who's become a coach, and he said, "I was walking around the ground with one of the senior elite players yesterday, and he told me his wife's dying of cancer." And um, he described this conversation he had. And he said, Steve, I was doing really well with, with this conversation until I asked him an open question, which was, how are you feeling about this? And he said, I panicked. Mm. And he said, the moment I panicked, I, the moment I panicked when I asked that question, I noticed I stopped listening and I started trying to solve a problem for him. So his internal state, sure. great guy, mm. fabulous human being, this guy, mm. very experienced. But the moment he, he, he started feeling pressure inside himself, and a sort of a, 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 a panic, he started trying to solve the problem for the somebody, which, of course, in this example, he couldn't. This mm-hmm. person's wife was dying. You see what I mean? So our internal state is very, very important, and how we understand that, and write about it, and help practitioners learn to um, work with their internal state, not against it, mm-hmm. is just as important as working with the motivation of the of the client.
1: So in some ways, the, the opportunity for, for practitioners is to become conscious that in some ways they're paying attention to, to individuals in any conversation. They're paying attention to the, the experience of being with the client, but also their own experience of being part of that conversation. And it sounds like in some ways that the, the, the growth is about learning to watch the being part of motivational interviewing. The being with someone else is, includes that awareness of their own experience of the, of what happens to them in the conversation and notice when there's a disconnection or a step in a way or a panic or a fear um, and it's learning how to respond to that that brings them back into contact with the client. So it's quite a, a way we're talking about some as we try to make it simple, it sounds like the, the way they understand the simplicity is quite complex as well because the process of being with another human being can be quite profound when when we pay attention to who we're with.
2: Yeah, that's right. It's just so beautifully put that, Glenn, what you've said. I couldn't put it better. And I think the challenge is to try and express what these guidelines might be in simple language. Mm. And I do feel we're getting there. Right. And, you know, I I do feel I can articulate what it is Mm. that um, is really helpful inside us to be of help to other people. And uh, psychotherapists have maybe got things to offer there. And, uh, and I suppose that's the sense in which I'm saying I'm a psychoarchaeologist in that, like, I'm trying to locate these things and describe them in simple language. And really, um, um, the, the, the collection of attitudes that are required are, are really quite simple, Glenn. How, yeah. You know, yeah. I could try and articulate two of the three key elements of this attitude, you know. Mm. Um, i can do that if you ask me you know I, I, I think mi is is a is a combination of attitude and skills okay we use the word spirit for attitude but attitudes probably a much much easier word right. to use right and so the question is well what are the attitude what is what are the elements of the attitude and what is the skills right that's that's at the heart of it and if we use simple language to describe that your listeners are going to go i hope oh shit i know what that is. that's right. fairly that's fairly straightforward right so how, how about this for an analogy? I know I've, I've, I've just spent the morning with a, with, a, with a famous sportsman, right? The, at the heart of this guy's skill is something it's, – it's very simple. It's so simple, but that doesn't mean it isn't, it isn't a little bit difficult to learn to do. Right. So, you know, the, the heart of MI and its, and its practice is simple, hmm. uh, but it does require effort and practice – to do well. Mm. as my mate, Jeff Allison, uh, apparently said quite recently, you can teach MI in an hour and it'll take a year to learn how to do it. Right.
0: Quite a nice way of putting it. And, well, just in thinking about this, the this sort of attitude and, and the skills combination there, it strikes me that one of the maybe underlying Elements of someone having a conversation with another person is wh- whether the, it ends up working well or not. However, you define that is is just the desire, the effort, or the the intention of wanting to help another person. Uh, it, it, you know, like you talk about the the sportsman that you just were mentioning, and and he was having a conversation with someone else going through a really difficult time, and and there's there's just something that seemed to, to resonate to me about wanting to be helpful, searching for a way to connect with this person to be helpful. And that seems to, I imagine you, you would agree, its its it would be an underlying feature with any of the helping conversations that we think about or discuss in MI.
2: I think that's one of the elements of the attitude.
0: Right. right?
2: Being helpful to somebody and coming alongside them. And then I think there's some others which, uh, uh, let me see if I can, in two sentences, state what they are. Um, and they'll be very recognizable. Coming alongside and being helpful with a person, not just a patient or a client, a person who has strengths already inside them, and who likes to make decisions for themselves. And my job is to do that, coming alongside this person who has strengths, and who likes to make decisions for themselves in such a way that they find the answers with my guidance rather than me tell them what the answers are. So I would, I would, I would say that, that those are the, the elements of attitude and you can use different words, you can use the seriously fancy words for that, but I'm suggesting that like it might be distilled to something as simple as that. And then there's one element of that, of what I've said, that is not just about being helpful. It's not just about seeing a person with strengths who likes to make their own decisions. It's something that's a little bit unique about MI, which is that you you trust their ability to solve this problem and you work with that. And now we call that evoking, and that's something you might or might not want to unpack in these podcasts. But it's that forward-looking focus on change and helping the person to clarify for themselves why and how they might want to change. So it's not just like client-centered counseling or sitting around and listening to somebody and and feeling helpful. It's actually being helpful in that you believe they have the wisdom inside them and you're going to harness that wisdom. Mm -hmm. And that's what we call evoking. And I think, you know, that's the element of MI that uh, uh, Bill Miller uncovered in, in, in the early 1980s and we've more or less kind of kept that kept that little fire burning in our writing on m mm-hmm. i such that we've got to the point now where we can say it is as simple as that right to right. to be curious about what it is inside somebody that helps them to change sure and it
1: reminds me of the 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 good teacher exercise that that we use very often with students is that invitation when you've been Think of someone who's been a good teacher in your life, and think about the characteristics about that individual who made them such a good teacher for you. And how, how often that one of the ways they describe this good teacher is they believed in me. And exactly. and and when we explore that, it's it's very often that they believed in me long enough for me to be, to begin to believe in myself. That they absolutely so beautiful. That, that trust that 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 the practitioner brings is we can see something in them just long enough for them to begin to see it for themselves and once they can see it for themselves it becomes its own entity
2: Absolutely Glenn and so there we see this attitude in the in, in the behaviour and, 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 and in a teacher mm. like we can in the sports coach that sure. I was speaking to this morning however there's what MI really contributes are the techniques and skills for realising that right. and that is something that I feel we have contributed and it's that that accounts for some of this good evidence that's coming out about MI in the research and in my conversations with, with, with people when I use MI. Um, those techniques are really something quite special. Hmm. And um, you'll, you'll notice in your description there, one of the references to one of the techniques, which is affirmation. Hmm. What, what you're saying about the good teacher hmm. is that they, they affirmed me. Yes. they helped me see my own strengths mm. so even a concept like affirmation which I could say ah oh, we pulled from psychology and blah 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 actually you know affirming others is something that is there in high quality teaching but a lot of these elements of attitude and indeed the skills have got overwhelmed mm. by uh, stressful conversations in which they've forgotten mm. and so we, what we're trying to do in mi is to uncover mm. Um, what skillful teaching and helping really is about
3: hmm.
2: um, free of the constraints of the stressful environments which people so often find themselves working
0: well it, maybe the audience would be very interested to hear more of your thoughts on affirming and and the skill of, of providing helpful affirmations uh, Steve could, could you go into more detail on that
2: sure my man and I think Um, we mentioned listening as being a powerful vehicle for helping people work out how and why they might change. And that, that I'm sure that's something that your, uh, in your podcast is a theme that will run through it. And it's a skill and it's very simple and it takes practice, just like any good sporting maneuver. And I think it's the same with affirming. And the nicest way that I have found in in working with uh, practitioners to describe this is just imagine that you've got you're wearing a set of spectacles or goggles or lenses. One of them is looking at people's problems, and you sometimes have to. You know, you work in all these environments. You do need to help people work through what are their problems. Now imagine having on top of that a set of lenses in front of them that looks at people's strengths. And if you've got those strengths lenses on, you're not forgetting about problems, but you've got the strength lenses on as your first uh, uh, first thing that you see, then what will naturally happen is that you will notice people's strengths. Affirmation is simply the skill of pointing it out to them. Mm. And it's not like praise in which you're passing a judgment almost like top down and good job and well done or enthusiasm or cheerleading. It's it's not something, it, it's something that's already inside them that nobody can take away from them. So affirming is like shining a light on people's strengths that are already there. Mm. And that's for them to take ownership to recognize that and to take ownership of. It. So, for example, um, a, a client that I often talk about who really helped me understand this beautifully. I mean, I, you know, it, we're trying in the MI field to say the best teachers are our clients. And that is absolutely not some kind of glib psychobabble. I honestly, genuinely believe it. And now here's a, here's a nice little story that'll illustrate it. He had multiple problems, type 1 diabetes, multiple substance dependence things, as well as the host of other social and personal issues. And he was about to lose his leg. Okay and he was chain smoking, using drugs, and some of the things he was doing with alcohol were definitely not constructive for his diabetes. You could, I, I could put the pro, problem lenses on, and it's a hell, of a hell of a story that I could tell you. And you'll get quite down, oh my God, oh my God, like I did and like he did, right? But apparently, he comes back one day and he says, Steve, um, I've quit one of these drugs. And I said, what? He said, yeah, it was something you said. And I said, oh, come on now, man. What what was it I said? So this is what he reported, and I do remember saying it to him. We had this rather difficult kind of problem-ridden session, right? But right at the end, uh, we both stood up, and he straightened his – he's always beautifully dressed, this guy, with his wonderful walking stick that he'd carved himself. And I said to him, apparently, you are a dignified person. Mm -hmm. Um, And he just looked at me. And we said goodbye. And he said that, 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 that he carried that idea that I am a dignified person out with him into the world and decided, well, I'm a dignified person and this stuff's not going to get me down. I'm going to do something about my life. So there's, a, I guess, is, a, is an illustration of, the, of, of what an affirmation is and quite how powerful it can be and how very simple it is. I don't
1: know if that's helpful. Yeah, so it's it's, and that example, I imagine for a lot of people, will come across, be quite profound. That, again, the simplicity of the statement, but the magnitude of the effect, and it seems like, what what made the difference was that, the affirmation that you offered him was genuine on your part, and it landed in a place that meant something to him as well, and as a consequence of that he moved, moved forward from there. And it sounds like the mechanics of affirmations is in itself, another very interesting topic, the, the, the authenticity of the giver, but also the, the resonance with the receiver that, that, that dynamic makes quite a difference too. Um,
2: yeah. Hmm. And if you wear those strength goggles, the, the affirmations will come out of you. So right. it's, you know, of course we can say, look, it's a technique. Yeah, which which it is, but really, what's at the bottom of it are the are the are the lenses that you wear. Right, and it's so it's that critical element of the attitude that I highlighted, which is you're coming along alongside some a person who's got strengths, right, and so you've got you've got those lenses on, so you will you will use a technique like that quite naturally, in helping them see a path to improvement. Right, so
1: it's almost like recognizing that th- this individual whose life is in utter chaos. It's also recognising that this individual whose life is not a chaos has survived this long. How did they do that? And even more significantly, how did they do that without you? And the answer yeah. will be their strengths, their talents, their abilities, their gifts, their resources. Always yeah. striving for for something better.
2: Yeah. Wow. So these are some of the you know fundamentals of motivational interviewing, if you like. But uh, the, the, I guess the re- uh, the really unique part is is the evoking, and that that's. Um, a state of mind in which you're looking forward with them at how and why they might change, mm. and um, I guess that's something we might clarify. Or you certainly in your podcast you'll find people talking about evoking, and we can't think of a simpler word for it. But it's a beautiful word, but it's a little bit it's a little bit complicated. But there you go.
0: Right, right. Evoking, eliciting, drawing out are all different ways of of saying that that we've we've touched upon, and and it'd be great to hear. More of your thoughts on that. Although I, I do have a question, perhaps Steve is that in in thinking about affirmations like we just talked about, uh, that there's I, I imagine most people could see how hearing that 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 offering that you are a dignified person that that might produce some sort of internal change within that individual that maybe met, uh, helped them to, to feel better in that moment. It certainly sounds like from the story that it led them to, led that person to sort of coming, to keep coming back to that idea of, of them being a dignified person. And it, it led to, a, you know, a, an emotional change of sorts, perhaps a, a change in how they thought about themselves. But I wonder if you could speak to your thoughts on the links between a statement like that, or affirmations, more broadly speaking, and to the to this business of evoking, like how would how are those two ideas linked? How does affirming someone else help to cultivate their ability and the the practitioner's ability to look forward and to evoke uh, a different way uh, a different way forward for somebody? Yeah, does, does yeah, that makes sense. I get it, said, imagine having a
2: third set of lenses which has to do with MI. So you've got your MI lenses on top of the strength lenses, right? If you look at it that way, when you've got the MI lenses, you're focused on how how they might change, how and why they might change, okay? So, for example, this coach I spoke to this morning says, what do you think about Ba-Ba-Ba? This is a particular elite sportsman that we both know. And I said, well, tell me, how have you been getting on with him? And he said, well, I sat down with him, asked him how he was feeling about himself as a player at the moment. But then I said to him, listen, um, and this is where he's obviously got the MI lenses in front. He said, I said to him, how do you want your career to pan out here? Because you've you've got some problems. You've got some problems, many problems you're facing. But how do you want your career to pan out? Now, the guy's answer amounts to what we call change talk. Okay, and so that's a pretty, pretty normal, helpful question to ask, like any good teacher or sports coach might or counselor might. You're asking about change. So the MI lenses have got to do with change. Now the two of them are facing in the direction of change. And we could look at that as being right. So now you're on the in the MI groove. The moment you're asking about change and you're believing that the answer is inside the person, you're in the MI groove. Now, all the techniques that we talk about in MI can be used in the service of that journey. And affirmation is just one of them. So this coach, I'm not sure what he did, right? But he might have said to the person after a while, so you really feel determined to make this work for you despite the problems you've got at home, okay? You really feel determined is an affirmation about a strength inside him, but it's, it's, it's seen through the MI lenses because it's a focus on how he can improve and change. Do you see that? So the mm. affirmation is used in the service of, of evoking, of getting the wisdom out of him about how he's going to improve, mm. and it's a very powerful thing to say because the athlete will then say, oh, absolutely, determination is something that I've always had. That's how I've got to where I have. Even though now I find myself with all these problems in my home life and that are really I'm up against it, but that's right, I feel really determined. Now that coach could reply with another affirmation, which is, and you had the courage to grab hold of me and say, I want to talk about this. Okay. right. So there's another affirmation, which refers to courage. And the guy guy might reply, Yeah, absolutely. I just decided it's time for me to be open with somebody, and I'm feeling very vulnerable in talking to you about this, but I'm safe with you because I know I trust you. So yeah, I I plucked up the courage. It took me a long time to talk to you about it. I'm worried that you might deselect me from the team and so on, but look, this is the reality. So it did take quite a lot of courage to come and see you about it. And that coach could even reply with another affirmation. Now, I'm not suggesting that you just use affirmation like that all the time. It's just that you asked me, in what way is affirmation used in the heart of MI with evoking? And I've given you two examples, and I could give you another one. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. there's an example of how you can sit in the MI groove with somebody, talk about change, believe they've got the answers, but do this by highlighting strengths that they've got, which you know are going to help them formulate a solution. Because the next question from such a coach might be, so I wonder – what this means for you. How are you going to find a balance between these problems you've got at home and your your determination to make a success of your athletic career? And the guy will say, well, one of the things I've wondered was whether I shouldn't just move out of that home environment. Maybe I should move out of that home environment. Of, I'll, I'll at least get some peace for a while. Um, and so I can stop living with my parents and, and, and then I can... Now, the reply to that might be another core technique in MI, which is listening, which is something simple like, so you think that might be a way ahead. Notice it's not a question, okay? Mm. It's a reflective listening statement. Mm. But it's designed to highlight and reinforce the change talk which the person is already producing inside themselves. Mm. And so he might, the sports person, he or she might reply, no, that's right. One way or another. I've got to relieve myself of the pressure that's at home. There's more change talk.
3: Do
2: you see what I mean? So if we listen to this conversation between these two individuals, we will say that's like a very normal-sounding conversation, and indeed it is, and it's a helpful conversation. And um, this this coach is believing in the strengths of this person, not just an athlete, and this coach is respecting that athlete's autonomy of decision-making. That's brilliant. That's the key elements of the attitude. But it's got something else, which is the MI jewel, which is this coach is helping the person face change and talk about why and how they might achieve it. Mm. I, mean, I don't know if that's helpful, my man.
1: Yeah, and the image that's coming up with in my mind as you're describing that, Steve, is that I think traditionally we as practitioners have – come alongside of the, the client or the patient and looked into their world, and then made suggestions about what it is they should be doing different in that world. The way you're describing it is, is the practitioner comes alongside of the client and invites the client to describe their way through this. And as they see them do that, they offer the affirmations, they ask for ideas, they look for ways forward. That, that, right. that again, so it's the client coming up with ideas. And we, we talked about this with Terry the last time was that, that and, and I think it was maybe yourself or Bill that had first introduced it to me, is that idea that what's happening is is the practitioners is witnessing the client talk themselves into change and their job is to listen them into change.
2: It is, Glenn. And it's a hell of a privilege. Hmm. It's a hell of a privilege. You know, this this sports coach that I I I sat with today, it shone out of him this sense of humility that he's an incredibly lucky person to be sitting with this phenomenally successful elite athlete and watching the, watching the guy formulate change as they're going along. Mm. And, and it's a, it, 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 it was, the coach that I spoke to this morning was a humble guy and he, he was incredibly successful himself. He's a household name, but the guy's humble. Mm. He, he believes that these sportsmen that he's working with have the capacity to change. If only he creates a safe space in conversation with them and indeed in the club around them, which is another story about culture change, which uh, is something we might touch on in this podcast. How do you create that atmosphere in a whole organization? And this is exactly what he and I met to talk about this morning. But he created that atmosphere between them that gave them both the courage and the curiosity to wonder how the guy could change. Hmm. Now, that's quite a nice way of describing MI. But there's a certain warning sign here, um, Glenn which is, are you are you suggesting, are we suggesting that this coach doesn't offer advice, hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's traditionally been the way MI is presented. I bet you most of the people in your podcast, Terry Moyers and Bill Miller, yeah, they might refer to advice giving, but they'll say, hang on, this is about evoking. Let me tell you, I feel that with solid engagement and we might pick apart what do we mean by solid and rapid engagement. But with solid engagement with somebody, that coach could have given advice to that player mm. at any point in that conversation. Okay, It's a question of how it's done. Okay, It's done in such a way that you don't undermine their autonomy. It's done in such a way that you offer rather than force the information and advice on somebody. And so that coach might have said to this player at a certain point, listen, can I interrupt you there? Would you mind if I give you a piece of advice here?
3: Hmm.
2: And the guy might say, yeah. Now then, it's possible, I believe, for that coach to give advice in such a way that it's perfectly consistent with MI. And you, why do you know that it's perfectly consistent? Because change, talk, will result.
3: Hmm.
2: Okay, the person feels that free that change, talk, will result. So he might have said to him, look, my feeling is that moving out of a house right now given that you've got this big game on uh, the next three or four weeks, might be a bit premature, okay? That the idea might be a good one, but I'm wondering wondering about the timing. And so my feeling is rather not move out right now, but give yourself a little bit of breathing space, get over the next two key games, and then we know we've got a gap in the fixture list, and maybe you can do it then. But it's up to you. But that's my advice. Now, (laughs) that's very clear advice from an expert, from somebody who's who's kind of Mm. been through it all, but the person feels free to to accept or reject it and move on. So the response to that would be something like, I can see what you're saying, but hell, I'm not sure, you know, because if I stay at home, it's just going to be more of the same and it's going to affect my performance. So I'm not sure. So there you go. Now they're talking about how, whether or not the guy should move out the house and there'll be change talk and there'll be arguments against it, which we call sustained talk. But OK, but advice giving has been used in the service of championing his choice about change. Hmm. So my feeling is that for those practitioners out there who try to learn MI, don't shirk advice giving, just refine your use of it. Hmm. Use it in the service of promoting autonomy and freedom for the person to make their own decisions. So in recent years, this isn't like historical stuff, but in recent years, I've come to the conclusion that it's possible to clarify what skillful advice giving is. And if I do it and demonstrate it, which I've just tried to do now, it's indistinguishable from Mm. skillful MI. Mm. There's a nice new direction, which I'm hoping will, will, will help practitioners out there to not feel that MI is like putting on a completely different set of, you know, it's got these spectacles which you wear, but for God's sake, it's about helpfulness. And most of that helpfulness you know about anyway, any good sports coach or teacher will offer advice. Right. But the person, it's going to land well for the person if they feel respected and they can make the decision for themselves. Hence the word offer advice rather than give it or dump it. So I wanted to touch on that subject of advice giving
0: because I know the three of us are interested in it. Right. And you said you had this phrase there of, in that um, example between the the athlete and the coach, and you, you, I remember. I don't know if I'll have the words exactly right, but it was something about the advice is being offered as a way to uh, to help, uh, helping championing his choice about change, it, and and maybe that's also something that the listeners can can keep in mind about how advice works or how it might sound. And am I is that. It's it's done to champion the other person's choice that they have either made or are considering making about change. It isn't it isn't the agenda that the practitioner, the clinician, the coach has for the other person. It's it's coming alongside the other person's developing decision to make a change, and it's to help forward that decision.
2: All right. Correct.
0: Yeah.
3: Absolutely. Mm. Yeah.
1: So can I, maybe can I ask you, I'm not sure if this is a challenge, or, a, but given the fact that we're talking about evocation and, and drawing out from the individual, I'm, I'm thinking about the audience members and I'm just wondering if there was people listening to this now, Steve, in your experience when you're teaching motivational interviewing, what sort of questions do you ask of your students that helps clarify this for themselves? So, if there was one or two questions that you might ask the audience here now for them to think about after today's podcast, that will help deepen their understanding of their own practice and the integration of motivational interviewing, what might they sound like?
2: <laughs> you say, "What are you saying, Glenn? Are you asking me what advice I would give?" No,
1: people? no, it's not. An, certainly not. I'm not, not asking you to give advice. It's given the nature of of how you come across in our podcast is that you're very considered and and you're you're very I'm gonna use the word gentle but it's not necessarily the exactly what I mean, but it's you're very caring towards the almost like the imprint that you leave in, in the contact with someone. That, that that you promote their autonomy, you promote their their strengths, you and as a consequence of that what I'm curious about is in your experience of teaching motivational interviewing that if someone listening to this podcast, if you were to maybe ask them a question for them to reflect upon, to help them deepen their own understanding of their current practice, consistent with motivation and to add to their practice, consistent with motivation. When you're teaching people, what sort of questions do you ask that would evoke that internal curiosity?
2: Wow. Uh, it would be a series of questions, my right. man, but wow, that is so tough, what you just asked me. It would be, what does it mean to really engage with someone? Right. For you, w- w- What does it mean? Right.
1: Okay. So, what I'm going to I'm going to do is just just pause for a second, just allow the audience to hear that. That's, that's a question. What does it mean for you to engage? Yeah? Yeah.
2: Brilliant. Yeah. The next that's question the, would be? The next question. So, that would be about coming alongside. Right. The next question I'd ask them is, what does it really mean to look at someone as a person and not a client or a patient? Okay. okay. What does it really mean? And you can try all these things out. Dave. The answers to these questions, you can try it. Try that. out. Hmm. The next question would be, what, what does it mean to see this as someone with strengths, not just problems. What does that really mean? Hmm. Okay. And there are three questions I would ask them to consider. And I think the answers often involve quite a profound shift in the way they speak to folk. Right. And there they have the foundations for doing motivational interviewing, if they can ponder these shifts. And then there's one more, which is this conviction that people have the answers inside them. And what what does that really mean for you? And I would share some of the answers with them, like, I need to be settled inside myself and really focus on the person and not me solving their problem. Hmm. Um, I need to be patient while they work this out. And maybe I will discover that I'll get there much quicker than if I did anything else. Hmm. So while this might sound like a ponderous activity, believe me, the more you settle into that state of mind, the faster is your progress. Great. And so while there's this here's this paradox that that, hmm. that, that we've learned in the MI, I've learned over the years, which is that the more skilled you are at listening, the faster is your progress. But that's something we could, you know, uh, whether I would, I do, I spend a lot of time on that particular uh, issue. So I would ask them, does listening really take more time? And I would pepper them with examples Mm -hmm. of where it doesn't, and I would demonstrate it myself, um, show them videos of of physicians and psychologists talking about, wow, I could enter the state of mind where, a bit like what the horse whisperer says, that, you know, if I just behave like I've got all day, it's only going to take me a short amount of time. But if I behave like it's just I've only got a short amount of time, it's going to take me much longer. So it's a state of mind in which you just settle in. What is it like for you to be in a state of mind where you where you settle into a conversation with somebody in an unrushed manner? Hmm. And for me, the answer to all of these questions is that it. It'll produce positive change for you and the people you speak to.
0: God, but yeah, yeah. Is that uh? That was a nice, nice way of uh, kind of clarifying that, Glenn. It was, it was wonderful. I'm, I'm glad we got to hear Steve's thoughts on that. And and the question of time is one I, I was wondering about for you, Steve, and and just because so much of the work that you do is in. Healthcare settings, and you know, we commonly hear in the states about primary care practitioners having, you know, seven minutes per patient or nine minutes per patient, and all these other tasks that they have, and it certainly links with what you said earlier, Steve, about the increased stress leads to dysfunctional efforts to help people, and um, just wonder if you could reflect a little bit on on your work in those uh, in those settings where. There isn't the the therapy hour, you know, that's afforded to somebody. That that they have very a very limited amount of time. And and how am I fits, or how am I might be different than it would be with with a therapist who has an hour to work with somebody.
2: Yeah, we've fallen into that trap big time by setting ourselves up as therapists to do all this stuff in the therapeutic hour. When in reality, you know, I really genuinely feel that. Um, if you've got just a short period of time, you can make phenomenal progress and you can use MI. Uh, it, it, it requires a state of mind in which you certainly, to begin with, do not get into a rushed state of mind, also requires a state of mind in which you do not believe you have to get to a particular outcome. Mm. That, that, that can be dysfunctional. In other words, it can be, if you've only got 45 seconds with somebody, left in your consultation, it can be good enough to say to them, do you mind if I just ask you one question? And it's an evocative question about change and leave it at that with him. So I do feel that MI can be practiced very briefly. I've seen wonderful examples of this in my career uh, in in extremely difficult situations. And so um, I, I can illustrate this for you and can talk about it um, if you want me to. Mm.
0: Yeah. Please. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. How would you like me to do that? Uh, well, you've done some wonderful uh, work, uh, you know, discussions so far with us, with some of the examples that you had, particularly in an athletic uh, context. Uh, you, you mentioned in passing some difficult examples and, healthcare settings, maybe you can draw from one of your experiences there and say, and, and explain a little bit about how this sort of stuff can happen in, in, in more rapid timeframes.
2: I think the key there is, first of all, your state of mind of not rushing, mm. not being too ambitious about having to reach certain outcomes, and then using listening, which is a technique we haven't talked a lot about, but we'll run right through your podcasts. Now, that listening can be used in the service of a number of tasks, if you like, if you're thinking about, like, healthcare. And one of the incredible things that that that's happened to me over the years is that I've realized that often what goes wrong in these settings where, where there's high pressure is that there's an absence of engagement. And if the patient starts talking, they're interrupted within 11 seconds, apparently, is the average or something. And this absence of engagement creates dysfunction and poor outcomes. However, if you turn that around positively, if you use listening to engage with people, I've even provoked colleagues to suggest that the 20% rule, in other words, you spend the first 20% of any consultation only engaging, you'll find yourself able to move really, really easily thereafter. Hmm. Now, how do you do that? that's a skillful business and that involves making listening statements so step 1 i would say is rapid engagement so if it's in a if it's in a, a, a let's say um, uh, accident emergency unit or a primary care setting in which you, you've already spent 5 minutes managing this and that problem and you've only got 3 or 4 left well i would say if you'd started the whole process right at the beginning by just engaging um, you'll be in a good position to raise questions that point towards change. And then in response to those questions, when you're evoking, you will use more listening and summarize the essence of what someone's saying and crystallize for them um, what they feel about why and how they might change. So I would say rapid engagement followed by thoughtful, carefully worded, Open questions about change by further brief listening, but trusting that the person has the answer inside them. Perhaps a piece of very well thought out advice that champions their choice, and off they go. And I think there are examples of this out there for your listeners to look at. I don't mean to be egocentric in any way, but the British Medical Journal have published a free module on MI where I interview a really, really difficult person and they say, you've only got five minutes and the guy doesn't want to be in the room. Settle yourself down. Use reflection for the first 20% of the time to rapidly engage. Raise the subject of change. Reflect what they say about change. Summarize the outcome. Raise a few key questions and they can go out and you'll find that they will start articulating what change might mean because they feel safe with you. Mm. And the safety is created by the rapid engagement to begin with. So you can't use MI in a short period of time if you don't help people feel safe. Mm. I mean, I guess that's one thing. And the rapid engagement allows you to do that because they believe you when, when, when you've shown them that you understand how they feel in that engagement phase, they feel safe. And when people feel safe, they're more likely to consider change. So MI can be used very rapidly. Right. But you know what it is, Seb, but You know what we're struggling with, with the words and with this demonstration? It's because in reality, it's got a lot to do with what you don't do. Hmm. <laughs> you see, so it's the absence of things. You know, I've tried to talk about what the presence is, but I could list a whole lot of things that you just don't want to do. If you want to if you want to make really rapid progress and you want to use MI, hmm. uh, you know, it's quite easy for me to articulate what you mustn't do. Right. right. So sitting sit on your hands. You've got to sit on your
0: hands. <laughs> yeah, you, you mentioned one already. It was interruption that that early interruption in the session can really uh, can really derail things. Uh, I'm sure the listeners would love to hear your thoughts on a couple more maybe, other ideas that come to mind as as to things that you want to avoid doing.
2: I I, I sort of use the the metaphor of sitting on my hands, because it it requires an incredible restraint. You've got to be very restrained if you're sitting on your hands, and it's, uh, don't interrupt. Try not to interrupt. Try not to leap ahead in your own mind with how they might solve this problem, because it could result in your, in your um, interrupting with, with with solution talk when they're not ready for it. Try not to interpret what they're saying. Try not to be clever yourself. No, I'm not convinced, am I, is about being clever. In fact, the cleverness sits on the person you're speaking to, not in yourself. So that's a big lesson for me, Seb. Try not to be clever. Try not to think of the next clever thing to say. Um, Try to, now I'm going on to the positive, try and capture the essence of what they're saying and hand it back to them. And they're more likely to run with it. So this restraint is um, quite something to practice especially in a world where, like, you're feeling obliged to do this or that procedure on people. It's, it's quite a shift. And it's not for everybody, Seb. I don't, you know, some people just find the shift a little too difficult. And I don't think we should create the impression that we think MI is for every practitioner, let alone for every client. You know, I mean, I feel fairly humble about that. There are other ways of helping people than using MI. So be it you'll only know for yourself whether MI is suitable by getting on top of it and trying it out. So there's no grounds for kind of making decisions too quickly about whether it suits you. You want to to learn it and try it out. Mm. But I must say the more I I learn about MI and the more I learn about myself and the limitations of my cleverness, the more I find MI is incredibly useful.
1: So in some ways, while we have the acronym for motivation to be network trainers is, is mint it's almost like what you're suggesting is is that before we decide it's a case of taking this mint and sucking it and see do we it, how does it work for you and give give it a go and uh yeah. you know what what strikes me is that from the that initial excitement of the first edition where you know that the two of you were moved to you know you, you had a message and an and something you wanted the world to know about, and you put everything into one book. It sounds like over, over the years, Steve, what has happened is it's almost like you found a way of distilling this this wisdom, this excitement down to more considered yet more uh, simply expressed wisdom. And that it sounds like that's the the journey that you you're continuing on. You're still finding ways of how do we communicate this in a way that communicates? How do we how, that most more and more people? Understand what it is that we're trying to express, so that they can then put it into practice. Ultimately, for the be- the welfare and the betterment of the people they're trying to help. So it's yeah. yeah so I know I at least take off my metaphorical hat to you because it has definitely changed an awful lot of what I do in my practice, but also changed an awful lot about the way I understand myself as an individual as a human being in my relationships outside of my practice as well. So. For that sake, I am I am grateful for what it is you have taught us and taught me over the years. Um, I'm conscious that you know, I know that me and Seb, me and Seb would would just keep talking. You're, uh, this is fantastic, but w- we do have to take into account your time, but also the 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 series of the podcast. If we'd have thought about it, we'd probably put a break in the middle of this and got you to keep talking, put out two versions, two two episodes of just you, because I know that the audience are going to. Find this very helpful, and and maybe one of the suggestions is just to encourage people listen to this a couple of times. the The depth and width of the information on this is quite profound. So, um, again, just to start bringing this to an end, just wanted Seb, say, there any other any last questions you want to ask Steve, and then invite Steve yourself, then maybe to give us a any closing thoughts you have before we draw our conversation to an end. All
0: right. Well, thank you for that, Glen. Yeah. One of the things we've we've been trying to ask all of our guests is, what is the the curiosity or the interest uh, of late for the person? What what is the the, the latest thing that you've been chewing on uh, in relation to MI? And and you you certainly chew on lots of things MI related, Steve. You already I imagine spoken to something that you've been thinking about more recently, which is the how MI fit. In the world of sports. Uh, so, I, I guess I'd just invite you to talk a little bit more about that, or certainly if there's another thing that you're chewing on that's even more recent than sports, uh, we'd love to hear it.
2: Oh, maybe I'll just highlight a couple of things. One is advice giving, how that can be refined, inf- giving information and advice, how can that be refined so that it's consistent with MI? Another is the use of MI at home, and I struggled with that one for many years. And I've come to the conclusion that it can be used at home, and I'll tell you why, which is that most of, of the talk about M.I, some of it that we've been having has got to do with addressing problems. Hmm. And when it comes to work, we're thinking about MI at home, I think there are limitations to that approach. That view of MI, that MI is used to solve, is used in order to help people solve problems. How's about putting it a different way? MI is used to help people grow. Okay. So if I then think about my home environment, I won't necessarily be wanting to use MI to help my adolescent kid clean the room because it's something that I want them to do or to behave in it this way or that way. I'll be using MI to help them grow and change. Okay. And if, so if we look at MI as being a method of helping people to grow and change, which I'm sure is, has, has shone out of me in this discussion – then you can use MI at home because I can ask my son, what do you fancy this afternoon? There's a range of possibilities. Do you fancy a swim or do you want to play football or do you want to go and do this or do you want to go and do that? His answer will be, what I really want is this. That's change talk. So I think the use of MI at home, not to solve problems, but to help someone articulate what they would really like to help them grow and change is on. So that's something that's been exercising me. Another is the use of MI by first responders, uh, like police, uh, accident and emergency people, fire officers. Um, I had an experience with, with, with a student on a bridge the other day where I sadly encountered a student who was trying to throw herself off a bridge. And so there, you know, and I've got a son who's a police officer, and I talked to him about what, how I handled this woman on the bridge, and he does this every day. He's heading out to people who are threatening to commit suicide. So I think there's tremendous potential there for using MI um, in really tight corners and really difficult situations. And police officers and first responders um, see, come across these daily. And what they've learned in essence is that um, you can't talk someone off a bridge, you have to help them come off a bridge themselves. Mm. And in that message, you can see it resonates with the essence of MI. So using MI um, in, in, in really tight corners is something that, that that I'm interested in now and I'd quite like to work on if and when I have the time to do it. So um, um, parents, helping parents in that way. Um, and then the ultimate, the absolute ultimate, which is to help children and young people to learn the skills among themselves to use them among themselves, and that's a very unexplored area. I don't think I'm going to have the time in my life to do that. But imagine, imagine helping children really to learn these skills to use them with each other, really studying that and really getting into that. So these are some new ideas that um, I've had. Probably most of them I won't touch on, Seb. But um, the first responder I'd be quite keen to, as well as as well as the use of MI at home. And the sports coach and the school teacher and the counselor and the psychologist, they all share one thing in common, which is they want to help people to grow and change. So for me, that's maybe not a bad parting message. Mm. The MI is a way of helping them to do that for themselves with you alongside them, believing in their strengths and capacity to do it. The skills are simple and they take
0: practice. Mm. Wow, fantastic. Uh, well, Glenn, any Last words.
1: Again, it's a case of um, just one of the things we we've been asking uh, participants and guests, Steve, is you know imagine that you've you've created a lot of questions for people in their own minds. If if you were willing for people to contact you, if that was okay, how would they go about it, or where can they find out more about Steve Ronnick and motivational interviewing in a way that would be comfortable
2: for you? Well. Um, the problem is not by email, right? Because I'm, uh, personally, I've retired and um, right. I'm I'm trying to grow through some health challenges at the moment, okay. so I, I, I can't be dealing with too many emails. So to contact me, I suppose email is the most common, you know. And mm. I, so I don't know what to say,
1: Glenn. So is, is um, maybe a, do you have a website that people could visit that maybe there's yeah, other links? Probably,
2: I do have a website if they put my name in Google. Yeah. They can have a look at that. But, you know, really, Glenn, it's not about me, my man. No. Um, You know, you can imagine I would say that, but it's not about me. And uh, try your luck with an email. Mm -hmm. Uh, Make a joke in the first line and I'll smile and I might answer. Okay. Right? But I'm inundated with emails. I'm happy to to receive them, but um, it's not about me, my man. No. Um, And the Mint organization is fabulous, and I'm Mm -hmm. hoping they will – Open up a forum for people to to approach with questions. So,
1: okay. So, if anybody wants to engage in rapid engagement with Steve ronick it's got to start with a joke, then. Yeah. Otherwise, I
2: just—it's too heavy, man.
1: Okay. Okay. (laughs) And certainly, if if, if people have thoughts or questions they have, as a consequence of of listening to Steve's conversation with us today, or anything else that's come up in this episode or any other episode they can follow or make make that in the twitter using change at change talking or on facebook at talking to change or as always the podcast at lendhayes.com
2: and there is there is a a, a a facebook page called Cardiff Motivational Interviewing which some colleagues of mine who go through my workshop have created they tell me that's quite an active forum okay. for anybody
1: just repeat that address then, right. steve
2: I think it's motivational interviewing
0: Cardiff, you'll find it using those keywords. Thank you. And Cardiff C-A-R-D-I-F-F, correct? You got it, Seb. All right. Wonderful. And, oh, actually, one thing that I you mentioned in passing the uh, the the bit on the British uh, medical journal. Yes. Online. Could you just point listeners in that direction?
2: Yes. Uh, use the words uh, the letters B M J for British Medical Journal. If they go into Google and just type BMJ space Rolnick R O L L N I C K, it'll pick up this this free module, and there you'll see some quite nice videos and explanations, and and it's all free.
0: Fantastic! Right. It really is a nice module. I've I've seen it myself, and and recommended it to many of the people that I work with. So uh, that'd be a great resource. Well, Steve. Uh, we appreciate this so much. It's been great talking with you today, and we really, really hope the listeners uh, have, uh, have, have learned a lot and will generate a lot of, of thought on their end and, and hopefully some uh, new ideas for, for their practice. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Steve. Deja, my man. Thanks, Steve okay everybody well uh, again hope you enjoyed our episode today and and keep uh, keep on the lookout for further episodes we have many more planned and as always uh, as you're listening we appreciate any feedback any reviews any likes uh, uh, any thoughts that you have we, we, we'd love to hear it okay thank you Glenn once again great talking with you and uh, until next time
1: yeah
0: thanks yeah thanks everybody